You know, there are sometimes questions that we ask and answers that we're given that don't really satisfy us completely. In fact, all they do is prompt us to ask further questions. Let me give you an example. A friend of yours loses a tremendous amount of weight. So you ask the question, how did you do it? How did you shift two and a half stone? The answer comes back, all I did was learn how to eat healthily. Healthy eating, that was it. Now, for some people that answer might satisfy them, but for other people, perhaps someone who wanted to imitate that friend and to lose weight themselves, the obvious follow-up question would be, what on earth does healthy eating look like? Maybe the question, is that really all that you did? Let me give you another example. A friend of yours tells you about a recent trip that they've taken to a castle in a neighbouring county. And you ask the question, quite rightly, during the lockdown, what on earth were you doing driving all that way to see a castle? And the answer comes back, I was doing it to test my eyesight. Now I hope that sort of answer prompts more questions for you. I'm not trying to be political, honestly. There's a sense in which the Q&A we looked at last week is one such Q&A. We looked at the question, what is the meaning of life? What is the purpose of life? And we looked at Jesus's answer, which is simplicity and clarity in itself. To love God with everything and to love our neighbours as ourselves. But there is certainly potential for follow-up questions to that, isn't there? The first and most obvious one perhaps is, what is love? When Jesus tells us to love God and to love other people, what does he have in mind when he speaks about love? Are we supposed to feel warm and fuzzy and um, attracted in various ways? Are we supposed to be thinking about acting in particular ways, taking action for the sake of other people? It's a good follow-up question to ask. Who is this God that we're supposed to love with everything? If you've got that question, then can I encourage you, open your Bibles and meet him, find out for yourselves. The Bible says that Jesus is the final and fullest revelation of who God is to us. It's not a question that the Bible wants you to have go unanswered. Or maybe you'd follow up with this question. Who is my neighbour? I get loving people. I get loving God. But I want to know who is it specifically that I'm supposed to show love and care and attention towards. Actually, that follow-up question was asked to Jesus in another environment, in another instance in which he was having this very discussion with a teacher of the law. We're going to look at Luke's gospel, Luke's account of Jesus's ministry, specifically at Luke chapter 10, when he's having this exact conversation. And the question comes back to him, yeah, but who is my neighbour? You know, for us today, we might ask a really similar question. When we're bombarded with news stories, 
with um, things happening locally, of people suffering, of sadness, of injustice, we might genuinely ask the question, yeah, but what on earth does any of it have to do with me? Why is this my problem? Why should I care? I hope as we spend some time together this morning, listening to the story that Jesus told in response to this question, that we'll see that actually this is a, an important question to ask and to have answered for each and every one of us. Luke chapter 10, starting at verse 25. Then an expert in the law stood up to test him, saying, Teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, he asked him. How do you read it? The teacher answered, Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind and your neighbour as yourself. You've answered correctly, Jesus told him. Do this and you will live. But wanting to justify himself, he asked Jesus, Who is my neighbour? Jesus took up the question and said, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho and fell into the hands of robbers. They stripped him, they beat him up, and they fled, leaving him half dead. A priest happened to be going down the road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. In the same way, a Levite, when he arrived at the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan on his journey came up to him. And when he saw the man, he had compassion. He went over to him and he bandaged his wounds, pouring an olive oil and wine. Then he put him on his own animal, brought him to an inn and took care of him. The next day he took out two denarii, gave them to the innkeeper and said, Take care of him. When I come back, I'll reimburse you for whatever extra you spend. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbour to the man who had fell into the hands of the robbers? The one who showed mercy to him, the teacher said. Then Jesus answered, Go and do the same. The story of the Good Samaritan. It's maybe one of Jesus' most famous parables. Certainly you bump into someone on the street and they know what a Good Samaritan is. It has totally and utterly permeated our culture. But one of the key details that we need to contend with this morning is found before the story is told. It's in verse 29 and it's the attitude, the heart of the man who is asking the question. Verse 29, we read, wanting to justify himself, the teacher of the law asked, and who is my neighbour? It reveals something about him. I think it reveals something about all of us. Deep, deep down, we don't want to love other people. Deep, deep down, we don't want to care for other people. We are ultimately selfish people. And the smaller that we can draw that little boundary, the smaller that we can make that circle of people that we need to be res feel responsible for, the better. It's into that context that Jesus tells his famous story. Into the context of people who ask the question, why should I care or whom should I care about? Because deep, deep down, they don't really want to care at all. 
We need to bear that in mind. Anyway, Jesus tells the story, doesn't he, of this man who is beaten, who is bruised, who is bleeding, who is literally fighting for his life. And he, and he gives two characters, two characters who you might expect to show him love and care and compassion. A priest and a Levite. They're people with power, with prestige, with authority, certainly with knowledge of God. And how do they see this man? How do they respond to what they see? Well, they see him and they see his problem and they leave it at just that, his problem. They decide it's not something they want to involve themselves in and so they pass by on the other side. But then a third character is introduced and there's a bit of a plot twist really. It's the sort of character that if it was a, a pantomime, we'd be encouraged to, to boo and to hiss at. It's a Samaritan. It's a distant relative of Jesus's original audience, a disliked relative of Jesus's original audience. And he sees this man in his suffering, in his sorry state, in exactly the same way as the other two guys had seen him. But how he responds is totally and utterly different. He sees and he stops and he takes action. He puts himself in harm's way. He makes this man's problems his own problems, even at great cost and great risk to himself. And so by the time the story is done, when Jesus reflects the question back, it isn't any longer, who is my neighbour? But it's, who was a neighbour? And they answer just as easy as we would answer, clearly it's the one who has shown mercy. It's the one who's shown compassion. It's the one who has actively loved this stranger that has been found lying on the side of the road. And see, Jesus isn't just answering the question of who is my neighbour. If he was, quick answer, everyone. Anyone with a breath of life, anyone with blood coursing through their veins, they are your neighbour. But Jesus isn't just answering that. He's answering the issue of the man's heart, of, of our hearts, of not really wanting to care and to love one another. And Jesus says what we need to understand is that we are all neighbours. And that means we need to make everybody's problems our problems. Now I think today we can genuinely wrap our heads around the idea that everyone on earth is our neighbour. We live in a globalised world. We can step onto a plane and within a matter of hours step out into another country, into another culture that is totally unlike ours. It's there, it's like nearly at our fingertips. I can jump on my computer and I can play games with people today, only it's not today for them. They're already living in tomorrow or they're still living in yesterday. We can make those connections. We are a globalised world. Our, our boundaries have shrunk. But Jesus wants us to contend with the fact that we shouldn't be wanting to draw boundaries at all. We should be wanting to love our fellow human beings. And when you stop and when you think about that, all of a sudden it makes sense of the command as originally given. To love your neighbour as yourself. That the command, the, the purpose of life isn't to figure out who is closest and who you have to spend your time and your energy on. But it's to see that, well, we're supposed to make other people's problems 
our problems. We're supposed to care about anyone and everyone who is suffering. Now, this isn't an isolated teaching. This isn't just a one-off in Jesus's uh, lips or even in the entire Bible. This is building on loads of foundational ideas. The first of which is found right at the start in Genesis chapter 1. When God is making humanity, it says that God made human beings in his image. That there aren't a race of people, there isn't a nationality of people, there isn't a sex or a gender of people that are special, but that all people have this shared dignity, this shared value, this shared worth that comes from being image bearers of God. Who is my neighbour? Who should I care about? Well, everybody, because everybody is valuable and precious in the eyes of God. And God puts his mouth where his heart is. I mean, he, he fleshes this out in his commands, in his Torah, uh, through the, the mouth of the prophets. Justice is a key, key theme in the Bible of people like you and me, not just concentrated on our own problems or even living and creating problems for other people, but having hearts that desire rectifying those problems, of making other people's problems our problems. You know, in the Old Testament, God goes really far through some of the prophets, even as far as to say, I hate some of the things that you are doing in worship of me because there is no justice in your land, because the poor are still oppressed, because the widows are still mistreated, because the fatherless are still abused. God says, don't offer sacrifices, don't offer songs to me unless those things have been sorted out. This isn't an isolated teaching that comes from the mouth of Jesus. This is, this is building on the very foundations of what the Bible is all about. That people alike all have dignity, that people alike all have value and that God cares about each and every precious soul and that means so should we. And this idea of us reflecting that God-like care and concern for others isn't limited to Jesus either. There are lots of places in the New Testament that we could go to and we could see in exactly the same sort of way that we are encouraged to love others as God has loved us. I really, really like Ephesians chapter 5. Paul writing to the church there and this is what he says. Therefore, be imitators of God. Be God-like in this respect. Be imitators of God as dearly loved children and walk in love. Well, what does that look like? As Christ also loved us and gave himself for us. A sacrificial and fragrant offering to God. Paul says, be like God, be imitators of him. How do you do that? Well, think about Jesus, who made our problem his problem. He says something very similar to the Philippian church. Philippians chapter 2, and he's encouraging the people to have an, an interest in one another. He says, if there's any encouragement in Christ, how should you live? You should look not only for your own interests and your own problems, but also the interests of others. Well, why should we do that, Paul? Well, he says, because that is the same attitude 
that Christ Jesus had, who gave up everything to come and to serve. He humbled himself, becoming obedient even to death on a cross for our sakes. That's how Jesus can command us. That's how God can command us to care about everyone else, to make other people's problems our own because he has made our problem his own. See, the gospel that we proclaim, the gospel that we say we enjoy is this, that we are a wretched people, that we are a far away from God people, that we are lost, we are blind, we are selfish, we are so many things. But Christ has come near. Jesus walking on that Jericho road, if you like, has seen our sorry, sad situations and has said, I'm going to do something about it. At great risk, at great cost to myself, I'm going to do what's necessary to see you all restored. That's why people speak so much about Jesus. Not just because he had clever things to say, but because of what he did for our sakes. That we can be made whole again. That we can be made well again. The Bible takes the language as far as to say that we can be brought from death back to life again because of what Jesus has done for us. If you want to know who your neighbour is, how far away that description um, extends, well, it extends past our world and into the heavens because Jesus is God come to us to save us, to rescue us, to reconcile us, to forgive us, to restore us. How far it extends is farther than we can even imagine. How far, it, how much it costs, well, it costs even to the point of his own life. Jesus said and did go and do likewise. So for Jesus, this isn't simply go and do as I say. This is Jesus encouraging us to go and do as I do. This, I think, is what godliness looks like. To care enough to act is God's example as well as God's command. To act even when it costs, that is godliness. And so I'd issue a word of caution at this point. On many issues that we might come to from the point of view of making somebody else's problem our problem. There are voices. There are voices in the church. There are voices in the media. There are voices in our uh, circles of friends and families. Voices which would encourage us not to love our neighbour. There are voices that would help us to justify walking by on the other side. Perhaps even voices that would encourage us to heap more pain, to heap more misery, to heap more suffering on those who we see who are already hurting. My word of caution is this, that when we listen to those voices, we are listening to Satan's voice. We are not listening to the Spirit. We are not listening to Jesus. We are not listening to God. His Spirit, His Word, it tells us to love our neighbours as ourselves. And any voice which is encouraging us to do something different than that, to keep on walking by, that is doing the devil's work. 
Now that might sound strong, but think about how this played out in Jesus's life. Jesus had this mission, this purpose, which he confessed himself, which is to come to seek and to save the lost, to, to die himself as a ransom for many, to make our problem of separation from God his problem so that we could benefit from it. And what happened in Jesus's life? There were voices who encouraged him not to take that path. He was tempted at the end of 40 days in the wilderness by the devil to take a shortcut. Instead of to um, reaching power and glory and authority through the cross to just bow down and worship Satan and be done with it. To not care about us, but to care about himself. When he was open enough with his disciples to begin to start speaking about the death that he had to suffer. Peter, one of his closest, one of his nearest and dearest said, never Lord, we don't want that happening to you. And what did Jesus say in response to him? Get behind me, Satan. That voice which is leading me away from loving others, loving my neighbour as myself, It's not God's voice. It's not God's wisdom in the situation. It's the devil's input. You know, right close to the end, when Jesus is praying in Gethsemane, I think it was the the devil's voice that was whispering in his ear, there's another way. You don't have to endure this. You don't have to go through this. You don't have to care for that bruised and that beaten and that broken man on the side of the road. You can pass along happily on your own way. Get down to Jericho yourself. No problem about it. Jesus committed himself not to that voice, not to that way, but to the Father's voice and the Father's way. So if there are voices that are encouraging you, that are telling you not to love your neighbour, question, well, where is that voice coming from? Do you want to listen to the enemy, the accuser's voice? Or do you want to listen to God's voice? Jesus' voice, the one who loved us and gave himself for us. Who is my neighbour? That's, that's the question that was asked. And Jesus says, nah, boys, wrong question. You need to be asking the question. You need to be contending with, how can you be a neighbour? How can you live like life like he lived life? How can you make someone else's problem your problem? How can you offer and sacrifice for the benefit of other people? We're going to think about that in a little bit now. But before we do, I want us to watch a video on the topic of justice. It's made by the guys over at the Bible Project. And it is one of the most fantastic videos I have ever seen. One of the most fantastic resources I've ever seen, unpacking what justice is in the Bible. If you were a praying mantis, it would be socially acceptable to devour your mate. And if you're a honey badger, you have no regard for other animals. You don't care. If you're a panda with twins, it's normal to abandon one to take care of the other. But if humans do any of these things, we would call it wrong, unfair, or unjust. Yeah, why is that? Why do humans care so much about justice? Well, the Bible has a fascinating response to that question. On page one, humans are set apart from all other creatures as the image of God. Yeah, God's representatives who rule the world 
by his definition of good and evil. And this identity, it's the bedrock of the Bible's view of justice. All humans are equal before God and have the right to be treated with dignity and fairness no matter who you are. And that would be nice if we all did that, but we know how the world really works. And the Bible addresses that too. It shows how we are constantly redefining good and evil to our own advantage at the expense of others. Yeah, self-preservation. And the weaker someone is, the easier it is to take advantage of them. And so in the biblical story, we see this happening on a personal level, but also in families and then in communities and in whole civilizations that create injustice, especially towards the vulnerable. But the story doesn't end there. Out of this whole mess, God chose a man named Abraham to start a new kind of family. Specifically, Abraham was to teach his family to keep the way of the Lord by doing righteousness and justice. Yeah, doing righteousness, that's a Bible word I don't really use, but what comes to mind is being a good person. But what does that even mean, being good? The biblical Hebrew word for righteousness is tzedakah, and it's more specific. It's an ethical standard that refers to right relationships between people. It's about treating others as the image of God. With the God-given dignity they deserve. And this word justice, it's the Hebrew word mishpat. It can refer to retributive justice. Like if I steal something, I pay the consequences. Exactly. Yet most often in the Bible, mishpat refers to restorative justice. It means going a step further, actually seeking out vulnerable people who are being taken advantage of and helping them. Yeah, some people call this charity. But mishpat involves way more. It means taking steps to advocate for the vulnerable and changing social structures to prevent injustice. So justice and righteousness are about a radical, selfless way of life. Yeah, and you find this idea all over the Bible. Like here, in the book of Proverbs, what does it mean to bring about just righteousness? Open your mouth for those who can't speak for themselves. And what do these words mean for the prophets, like Jeremiah? Rescue the disadvantaged and don't tolerate oppression or violence against the immigrant, the orphan, and the widow. And like here, look in the book of Psalms. The Lord God upholds justice for the oppressed, gives food to the hungry, and sets the prisoner free but he thwarts the way of the wicked. Whoa, he thwarts the wicked? Yeah, in Hebrew, the word wicked is rasha. It means guilty or in the wrong. It refers to someone who mistreats another human, ignoring their dignity as an image of God. So justice and righteousness is a big deal to God. Yes, it's what Abraham's family, the Israelites, were to be all about. They ended up as immigrant slaves, being oppressed unjustly in Egypt. And so God confronted Egypt's evil, declaring them to be rasha, guilty of injustice. And so he rescued Israel. But the tragic irony of the Old Testament story is that these redeemed people went on to commit the same acts of injustice against the vulnerable. And so God sent prophets who declared Israel guilty. But they weren't the only ones. There's injustice everywhere. Yeah, some people actively perpetrate injustice. Others receive benefits or privileges from unjust social structures they take for granted. And sadly, history has shown that when the oppressed gain power, they often become oppressors themselves. So we all participate in injustice, actively or passively, even unintentionally. We're all the guilty ones. And so this is the surprising message of the biblical story. God's response to humanity's legacy of injustice is to give us a gift, the life of Jesus. He did righteousness and justice, and yet he died on behalf of the guilty. 
But then God declared Jesus to be the righteous one when he rose from the dead. And so now Jesus offers his life to the guilty so that they too can be declared righteous before God, not because of anything they've done, but because of what Jesus did for them. The earliest followers of Jesus experienced this righteousness from God, not just as a new status, but as a power that changed their lives and compelled them to act in surprising new ways. Yeah, if God declared someone righteous when they didn't deserve it, the only reasonable response is to go and seek righteousness and justice for others. This is a radical way of life, and it's not always convenient or easy. It's courageously making other people's problems my problems. This is what Jesus meant by loving your neighbor as yourself. It's about a lifetime commitment fueled by the words of the ancient prophet Micah. God has told you, humans, what is good and what the Lord requires of you is to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. So what does justice look like for us? What does loving our neighbour look like for us? We live in a world, in an age when we are bombarded by other people's problems. Things that are happening in continents and countries that some of us might not be able to spell, let alone visit, come into our awareness. They cross our paths. It's a broken world and there's brokenness in every single direction that we turn. How do we respond? Well, I'd encourage us that our response will look different in different situations. Consider again this story of the Good Samaritan. He saw, he acted because he was there. The man was there with him and he did what was appropriate in those circumstances. It would have been wrong in those circumstances simply to to write a letter to Rome mourning about the um, lack of lighting, the lack of patrols, how dangerous this road was and that action should be taken. That would have been wrong because he had the opportunity to love him in the moment. However, a friend of the Samaritans who who learnt about this whole encounter um, a week later, it maybe would be wrong for them to just say, well, you've done the right thing, good on you. Maybe they'd have had the opportunity to write such a letter, to campaign and to encourage the, the, the problem at the heart of that man's suffering to be dealt with as well. You see, the response could be different in different situations and so it is with us. We can speak about so many different issues that we are confronted with right now, right today. Issues that are being confronted around the world like racism, issues like sexism, issues like trade and working conditions of where we get our food and our clothing from. Issues like abortion. Issues even that I was reminded of this week of things like the sporting events we watch and how they impact people's lives. How do we respond? Do we ask Jesus, which of these should we care about? Where can I draw the boundary lines? No, we don't. We have to confront and we have to question what does it look like for us in these scenarios to be neighbours, to show love, 
to show concern, to sacrifice, to make those problems our problems for the benefit of the people who are suffering. And it will look different in all of those situations. It will look different for each and every one of us. But what is key is that even in these very politicised issues, that we are not listening to voices that encourage us to walk by, to pass by on this other side of the road, but that we are involved and that we are showing compassion. That might mean changing how we behave in our homes, in our relationships with people, in our shopping patterns, in our spending patterns, who we associate with, where our money goes, where our time goes. It might mean writing letters, not to Rome, but to our politicians, to our government, to agencies and authorities who can make a substantive difference. What it requires us of us is to be people who, in our very hearts, are not asking the question because we don't want to love. Not asking the question in order to justify ourselves, what is the bare minimum that I can get away with? But asking the question as a, a reflex from what we've experienced in Christ. That we have been loved. That we have been neighboured by Christ. That he has given his own life so that we can benefit. So justice, loving our neighbours for us, it'll look a million different ways. But it will start with that attitude. It'll start with that heart and that question of what can I do to make that person's suffering less, to make that person's problem my own problem, and to seek justice to be done. Let's pray together. Lord God, we thank you. We thank you for your commands, but more than that, we thank you for what you have done, how you have lived out this scenario for us, that Christ, who was far away, came near to us, that he who was perfect yet suffered in our place. He died so that we could live. Lord God, I thank you for that and I pray that that would be foundational and fundamental in our lives. Lord, I pray that you would help us to hear your voice in a million different issues, that we would uh, reject the voice of the enemy which is encouraging us to pass by the other way and we would hear your voice, your spirit speaking to us, your son walking ahead of us and showing us by the way that he walks what we should do in these scenarios, that we would know how to respond in love. Lord, I pray that you would give us the courage to risk, the courage and the confidence to sacrifice. Lord, you would give us the willingness to make other people's problems our own problems, to walk with Christ's name in Christ's way, to love our neighbour as ourselves. For your glory, we pray. Amen.